The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. So, Hebrews chapter 4 is where we'll start in just a moment. So, I don't know about you, uh, but I like a good sandwich. Um, seems like a strange way to talk, start a sermon, right? I, I don't have a particular favorite, but I like a good sandwich. And for me, the most important part of any sandwich has to be the bread, right? It's got, it's got to be the bread. I don't have a particular type. Oh, I do have some favorite breads. You know, it might be sourdough or wheat or rye. Not personally a big fan of, like, just plain white bread, but whatever. Uh, it has to be bread, good bread on a sandwich. And so in my mind, uh, to, to say it in a kind of a southern way, if there ain't no bread, there ain't no sandwich, okay? Um, you can go to some of these places and they serve what they call breadless sandwiches. Um, it's kind of an oxymoron in my mind. doesn't make any sense. You know, they wrap some kind of meat or protein in some lettuce and they claim that to be a sandwich. You know, if you're into that kind of thing, I suppose that's fine. But just don't call it a sandwich. A sandwich has to have bread. And that bread, again, is the most important part of the sandwich. Without the sandwich, or sorry, without the bread, it's not a sandwich. And, um, yeah, what, what you put into the middle of the bread, you know, between the two slices, that, that's important. It's just not as important as the bread. Now, you might be, by now you're certainly wondering, what in the world does this have to do with the message today? Why am I going on and on about sandwiches? Um, well, today's sermon is going to be a sandwich of types. I'm going to start with grace, and I'm going to end with grace. And so if you will, I want you to see that grace is the most important part of the sermon that I'm going to be talking about today, but I'm going to fill that grace sandwich full of law, okay? So we're going to have grace and we're going to have law, um, both of which are important, but the grace is more important than the law. So I've titled today's message, Grace and Law, and those are the two gospel parenting principles that we're going to be talking about today. Um, if you're a note taker, our central idea is God's grace is the only hope for parents and children. God's grace is the only hope for parents and children. I'm going to make three points similar to last week. But before we get into that, let's open up with a word of prayer, please. Father, I thank you so much uh, for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your law that you've given to us. Lord, it's all important. But of chief importance, help us to be a people full of grace, to recognizing our need for grace and that we would be people who exercise grace as well with one another. And so, Lord, use this time now to mold us and to shape us into the men and women that you would have us be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one this morning is true Christian parenting begins only when we recognize our inadequacy. True Christian parenting begins only when we recognize our inadequacy. So there we were in a hospital room in Columbia, South Carolina. Mary and I had just had our first baby. 
Marshall was only two days old and some change, and those crazy people at the hospital were about to send him home with us. Um, they, they didn't do a background check first. They, did, they didn't ask, do you know how to parent a child? N- none of that. They just packed our things and sent him home with us. I don't know what they were thinking. Now, sure, I was a bit older for a first-time dad. I was 30 when Marshall was born, and so I may have looked like I knew what I was doing. Um, I, I may even have thought I knew what I was doing um, in my naivete, right? I had no clue. I didn't know, I don't even know, looking back, I don't even remember if I had ever held a baby in my arms before Marshall. Um, I was as green as they come. Mary, on the other hand, she was the experienced one out of the two of us. Um, she had at least babysat before, right? And so, uh, but between the two of us, we had never been ultimately responsible for a baby, Um and looking back on it, in many respects, it's terrifying, right? What, what if we did something wrong? We all know that you know, babies, they don't, they don't send you home with an instruction manual for how to raise a baby. And those what-to-expect books, they're, you know, they're good as far as they go, but they can't even answer all of the questions that you might have. Uh, it's, it's, it's even unrealistic to expect them to cover every possible scenario that you might have. And so let's face it, sometimes parenting is you know, flying by the seat of your pants. Now, that's not what our children want to hear, but that's what it is sometimes. It's flying by the seat of your pants. I get, I get tickled every now and then. Now, some 20 years later, 20-plus uh, years later, yeah, I, I talk to young couples, and I get amused when, when they'll, they'll, they'll say to me, you know, I'm just not quite sure if I'm ready to be a parent. And I get amused, and I hear some of you laughing, because you know, you're never ready to be a parent, okay? That, that never, ever happens that you say, okay, I'm ready. I've got all my ducks in a row, and now I'm finally ready to be a parent. If you do that, then you'll be too old to biologically have children. <laughs> so you can read all of the parenting books that you want, and all the parenting books that your budget will allow. And by the way, I encourage you to do that, particularly good Christian parenting books. We're going to have some out next week on our resource area, uh, some parenting books that we would recommend that, that you would uh, look into. But none of those books are going to magically and suddenly make you ready to be a parent. They're not going to transform you into a godly parent. And some of you may even find this next statement I'm about to make a bit sacrilegious. But I will say even the Bible itself won't suddenly make you ready. The Bible's not a magic book. It's not like, well, we can just read it one time and all of a sudden, boom, pop. Suddenly I'm ready. Suddenly I'm going to be a godly parent. Now, to be sure, so you don't misunderstand me, you know, reading it, the Bible, and rereading it, and meditating on it, and studying it for years and years, that will make you a better parent. It'll make you a better person altogether. But there's no quick fix to being a godly parent. And so all of this to bring back the wording here on this first point, that true Christian parenting begins only when we recognize our own inadequacies. True Christian parenting begins when we recognize how desperately we need the grace of God to be godly parents. And so, listen, when, when you first heard that we were doing a sermon series on parenting, if, if, if when you first heard that, the first thought in your mind was, I sure, so, I sure hope that so-and-so is going to be here uh, for, for that parenting series because their children, they're off the chain. That family, they need all the help they can get. You know, if, if that was kind of your first thought, then I'm going to suggest to you, you, you probably need this sermon just as much, if not more, than they do. The 
most important ingredient for a godly parent to possess is this. If you want to be a godly parent, you need to recognize and understand that God has given you the grace you need in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, to be a godly parent. And that grace that God gives us, it will transform us. It will make us into effective godly parents. You see, it's the grace of God that enables us to be faithful, consistent, patient, and loving. So as we point our children day after day, hour after hour to Jesus. And please understand me when I'm using the term grace here. Most of us have a pretty good understanding of grace in a past tense sense. You know, that's the grace that God showed us as He forgave us through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. You know, we're like, okay, I understand that grace. And we have a pretty good understanding of future grace. That is, that God in His grace, we, we, we believe in our heart of hearts that eternity has been granted to us because we are indeed God's children. And so we understand the grace of God providing eternal life for us. we got a pretty good handle on that. But that's, I'm not talking about that aspect of grace. I'm talking today about present tense grace. The grace that is available to us every moment of every day of our lives. I'm talking about the grace that helps us live our lives in a way that honors God. And so let's look at Hebrews chapter 4. I'm only going to read one verse from Hebrews chapter 4. This is verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. The author of Hebrews writes this. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's the word of the Lord. I want us to notice two things about this verse. There's more here than this, but I want us to notice these two things. First, I want us to think about the presence of God. Okay, for just a moment, let's let's think about the presence of God. Where, Where does God dwell? And some of you might think, well, God's, God's um, omnipresent. That means he's everywhere all the time. And that is absolutely true. But there is a special sense in which we can say God himself, he dwells in heaven, right? And according to Isaiah chapter 66, the Lord God says that, that his throne is heaven. Okay? And if heaven is his dwelling place, and if the throne is heaven then the throne itself, it represents his dwelling place. Are you, are you tracking with me? You're following with me? But here in Hebrews chapter 4, the author of the book of Hebrews tells that his throne is called the throne of grace. The very dwelling place where God himself dwells is called the throne of grace. And so that got me to thinking as I was preparing this way, it got me to thinking, you know, how else is the throne of God? How else is it described in the Bible. And so I did what any one of us would do. I decided I'm going to look up every use of the word throne in the Bible, right? All of us would do that, I'm quite sure. 191 times the word throne appears. Now, don't, it didn't take hours and hours. Just, you, you, with the right Bible software, boom, you, you, you get them right out there. It only took a few minutes. Not all of those 191 references, though, are to the throne of God. Most of them, in fact, more than half of them, are references to earthly kings and their thrones. And so But here's what I learned about the throne of God. And this is important. Listen, according to Psalm 47, God's throne is called holy. Now, he who sits on the throne is holy. And so it makes sense that his throne would be called holy. 
And according to Psalm 89, and by the way, Psalm 89 is just full of, I think there's like five references to the throne just in that one psalm. Uh, but I learned that the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. But it's here in Hebrews 4. This is the only place I found it in the Bible. It's the only place that describes what can be found at his throne. The author of Hebrews describes what is, if you will, dispensed from his throne. And so if you were to think about God's throne like a vending machine, which is not really a good illustration, okay? You don't want to think about God's throne as a vending machine. But if if it were, this is what you could get from God's throne. We're told here that his throne, his dwelling place, is a throne of grace. That's how the throne is described. It's the very presence of God is where we find grace. God's grace. That's God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. God's unmerited favor to us. The very presence of God. He dispenses to us grace. But second, and related to that, Notice again, here in this verse, God bids us, He encourages us to draw near to His throne of grace. And not only can we draw near to the throne of grace, God's Word says we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's a helpful word, isn't it? Confidence. You know, we don't have to be timid as we approach God. We can draw near to God with confidence and praise God for that. But why? Why might we want to draw near to God's throne? Or better yet, I think a better question is, why might we need, not want, why might we need to draw near to His throne with confidence? The author answers that question in the latter half of the verse. Look look with me, if you're still in Hebrews 4, look with me there at verse 16. We draw near to His throne with confidence so that, quote, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do do you hear what God is saying to us, what His Word is telling us in the latter half of that verse? God's Word is telling us that we are all, every one of us, we are needful people. We we, we all have this need in our life. We, We have this time when we come to the end of ourselves. And that includes parents as well. In our parenting, sometimes we come to the end of ourselves, don't we? If you're a parent, you know that. You come to the end of yourself. Maybe it's a three-month-old colicky baby. She cries all the time. You've tried everything you know to do. You've tried everything, and she still cries. What do you do? Or maybe for you, it's a defiant toddler. You tell him to go to your room, and he says, No! And he's not going to go to his room. What, what do you do? And beloved, I, I shared this in a small group this morning. You know, the problems don't get easier as they get older. They just get more complex as they get older. You have a 13-year-old who doesn't want to go to church anymore. She says to you, church is so boring. What do you do? Or you learn that your 16-year-old is experimenting maybe with drugs or alcohol or sex. You, you don't know what to do next. You're at the end of yourself. God's Word reminds us that we are needful people. And what do we need during those difficult days? Well, according to Hebrews 4, verse 16, what we need is we need to receive mercy and find grace to help us during our time of need. 
That's what we need. We need to recognize that we don't have all of the answers. We need to recognize that we need grace in order to parent well. Please listen, beloved. Don't try to pretend that you don't need help. Nothing is more off-putting to a child than having a parent who thinks that he or she is supremely able. You see, able parents, or at least those who think that they're able parents, they're usually proud and self-assured. And they, they think of themselves as able because... Maybe they follow the rules of parenting so well. And because they do that, they have, they have a hard time, able parents, being tender with the weakness of their own children. You see, they're so able, they can't understand, why, why isn't my child able? My child is weak. And they have a hard time being tender. And because able parents are so good at, again, like keeping the law of parenting, they tend to parent in law mode, which means then they also have a hard time showing grace to their erring children. And so Christian parents shouldn't approach parenting from the perspective that we have it all figured out. We don't. And and what's more, we know that we don't have it all figured out. And it's pride to think otherwise. But here's an encouraging word. God will never call us to something for which He won't supply our needs. And as we parent in God's grace, we have now a more accurate picture of ourselves. Because now we're we're, we're parenting in dependence. We're not like, I got it all figured out. No, I'm parenting in dependence. And as we parent in God's grace, now now we don't have to deny that we have our, our own weaknesses. God rescues us from ourselves. God grows us and changes us as parents. He makes our own hearts more tender now to our children. And He liberates us from our self-imposed prison of regrets. You know those regrets, right? If I had just done this differently, if I would just done that differently, and you look back over your child's life and you, you moan and you regret, do you ever live in that regret? Well, God's grace delivers us from that. And it's never too late to start. You might be thinking, well, my children are older now. You know, maybe you take an honest look at yourself and your own parenting style and you, you recognize that by and large your parenting has lacked grace. Beloved, it's never too late to start. Your children might still be in elementary school. Maybe they're teenagers. Maybe they're already even out of the house. But it's never too late to start parenting with grace. It's never too late to recognize your own inadequacy and parent out of the wellspring of grace that God offers us. That's point number one. Point number two. So that's first, the first slice of bread, okay? Now let's fill it up. Our children need to know the law. So we, we have the first slice of bread, a slice of grace. Now now this layer of law. And, and you might think that, you might think, well, is okay, grace and law, are, they, don't, they don't really go together, you might think. But they do. They actually work together wonderfully, like a piece of sourdough bread works with some Gouda cheese and honey roasted ham, right? You want to make it a good sandwich, so those things work wonderfully together. But what is the purpose of the law? I want, to, I want us to turn to Romans, Romans chapter 7. So you just turn back a, uh, um, a little bit. You guys should know where Romans is. We spent a year, almost a year in Romans. Um, Romans chapter 7 is where we're going to be 
looking at some verses here. I'm going to begin in verse 7 of Romans chapter 7. And I want us to see in this passage the purpose of the law. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. Paul writes this, he says, What then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This again is the word of the Lord. Now stay there. We're going we're gonna to read some more from Hebrews 7 in just a moment. Or excuse me, Romans 7 in just a moment. But in these verses, what what is the purpose of the law? According to verse 7, the purpose of the law is to make us aware of our own sin. The law arouses in us and makes us aware of our own sin in our own lives. Paul specifically gives an example from his own life. He talks about how the commandment against coveting really woke him up and made him realize that he was a coveter. He wouldn't have recognized his own covetousness had it not been for the law. And so Paul's making a strong argument that you and I, we need the law. We're desperate for the law. The the law, it serves an important function in our lives. But not only as parents do we need the law. Listen, our children need the law as well. Because we come into this world, all of us, not knowing the difference between right and wrong, between good and bad, And the law gives us a taste now of God's wisdom as he spells out for us what is right and what is wrong. And so the law now acts as God's wisdom in our lives. But the law also brings conviction to our lives. As it did with Paul, right? With with his sin of covetousness. We we have no idea that we're sinners who, who need forgiveness if God doesn't reveal to us what is objectively right and objectively wrong, if, if God didn't reveal that to us, we would be blind to our own spiritual need if it weren't for the law. And so listen now how, how Paul continues. I'm picking up with verse 13 here in Romans 7. Follow again with me. He says, did that which is good, and he's talking about the law, okay? Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual and I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil 
I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. Again, this is the word of the Lord. And so listen, the law is important. We, we need the law in our daily lives, and our children need it as well. You know, when, when your toddler defiantly disobeys you, he needs to hear from the law. He doesn't understand that he is re- rejecting God's law. And so we as parents need to lovingly let our child know that he's been called to obey mommy and daddy. He's been called to honor them. When your teenager wants to experiment with sex, he needs to hear from you that sex is a beautiful gift given by God, but it's been reserved for a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And so that conversation might go something like this. And this is just an example of how that conversation might go, but here's an example. We might say, you know, son, I know you have powerful feelings right now, and those powerful feelings are a good thing that God created for your life. But it's only good in certain circumstances. And so let me illustrate. You know, fire is also a wonderful gift. Fire can keep us warm. Fire can cook our food. Fire can give us light to see at night. But we dare not start a fire in any place in our house, right? In our house, we only start fires in the fireplace. If we start it anywhere else in the house, we're liable to burn the house down. Likewise, sex is a good thing. Sex can provide intimacy. It can provide relational warmth. It can produce children. But just because it's a good thing, it doesn't mean it's good wherever it happens. Sex is only good in the covenantal relationship of a marriage between one man and one woman. And so if we try sex in other places, we're liable to burn our house down, metaphorically speaking. And so as we have that conversation now with our child, do you see what we're doing? We've taken the objective standard of God's law and we're using an analogy to lovingly explain that to our teenager, the importance now of following God's law. We're using the law, but we're using it in a grace-filled way. You see, we need God's law in our lives. Our children need to know God's law in order to live their lives well. But here, beloved, this is where we need to be extremely careful. We need to be careful that we're not asking the law now to do something that the law was never designed to do. You know, the the law, again, it will show us our sin, but the law was never intended to get rid of the sin in our lives. In other words, if we continue hammering our children with the law, one after one day after another, hammer our children with the law, we're not going to turn our children in from sinners into saints. That's not going to happen. All you're going to do is you're going to embitter their souls against you and against God. Because you're asking now the law to do what the law can't do in their lives. Which brings us now to our final point. Point number three. Our children will only be changed by God's grace. Our children will only be changed by God's grace. Our, they need the law, but they're only changed by God's grace. So let's finish making that sandwich, if you will. Another slice of God's grace. Turn with me to uh, Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. So go back to the right. Um, you'll pass through First and Second Corinthians, and then you get to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2 um, is where we'll be um, just reading two verses. It'll be the last time we're turning uh, this morning. 
Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. So the very end of Galatians 2. I read verse 20 last week, but I didn't read verse 21, so I'm going to read them in, con- uh, in context today. Paul writes, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's the word of the Lord. I'm going to take just a moment to explain verse 20, because without understanding verse 20, we won't understand verse 21. And frankly, to understand verse 20, we need even just back up just a little bit more. It's going to be brief, I promise, uh, but we need a little bit of backstory here. The Bible teaches us that we were created in the image of God. We're created so that we might have a relationship with God, but instead of pursuing a relationship with our Creator, uh, the very first two human beings, Adam and Eve, they decided to do their own thing. The Bible calls that sin. And through their sin, the entire human race was plunged into sin. And so all of us, not just in this room, all of us on the planet, all of us are sinners. And our sin has messed up the relationship we were meant to have with God, our Creator. Our sin separated us from God, and there's nothing at all we can do to overcome that separation until, nothing we can do until God decided to send His Son into the world. And God's Son, Jesus, lived the life that we couldn't. He lived a life free of sin. And then at the end of his life, he went to a cross and died the penalty that we were supposed to die. Even though he wasn't a sinner, Jesus died for us. He was crucified. That is, he was nailed to a cross of wood and he hung on that cross until he died. He was buried. And then on the third day after his death, he was raised again from the dead. Now, that little background, that little story, those 60 seconds, that, that's, we call that the gospel. That's, that's the good news. It's what Christians believe. If, if you're a Christian today, you believe that. If you don't believe that, then even if you think of yourself as a Christian, you're not a Christian. Okay, this is, this is the gospel. But when we believe in the gospel, when we trust in Jesus, we too now According to the Word of God, we are metaphorically, we are crucified with Christ. That's what Paul is saying in verse 20. We no longer live ourselves, but now Christ is living in us. Christ did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and so now out of gratitude for His sacrifice, we now live for Him. Okay, Again, that's, that's verse 20. But pay attention to verse 21. Paul writes, he says, If righteousness were to come through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's what that means. Paul's telling us that if we could have been made righteous through the law, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die for us. If we could have been made righteous through the law, then Jesus died for no purpose at all. It was a pointless sacrifice i want you to imagine for just a moment that you're living in the midst of a pandemic all right just pretend probably not that hard but this pandemic is especially deadly so unlike covid that has a less than two percent mortality rate uh, here in the united states this pandemic 
this new pandemic, it has a 100% mortality rate. If, if you get this disease, you will die. Guaranteed. No one has ever lived. And so doctors and scientists, they began to scramble to find a vaccine, a, a cure for this. Meanwhile, mi- millions of people all over the world, they're dying. Days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, and the death toll has surpassed a billion people. Then suddenly there's a, there's a breakthrough. They've, they've determined that if someone has just the exact right type of blood, they can use that blood to stop the pandemic. A vaccine can be made and people will stop dying. And so dutifully, people all over the world are, are lining up to, see, to get their blood tested to see if they have the right type of blood. And then there's an announcement made. There's a six-year-old girl right here in Indian Head, Maryland. She has the right type of blood. And so her parents, they take her up to Children's in D.C. They want to have her blood harvested. And mom and dad, nervously, they ask the doctor, you know, how, how, much blood, how, much, how much blood are you going to need? you need a pint? you need two pints? And the doctors turn pale as they say, we weren't expecting a small child. We're going to need all of it. Mom and dad are, of course, speechless. They're faced with a dilemma. If they, you know, if they don't authorize a doctor to take all of her blood, everyone's going to die, everyone on the whole planet, including their daughter. Or they can say their goodbyes to their daughter, and her blood will save billions of people. What do you do in a situation like that? I mean, it's, you know, theoretically, it's easy to say, well, of course, you save the billions. But if it's your daughter, it makes it a lot harder, doesn't it? Let me change the parameters just a little bit to that story. Suppose it's still the same pandemic, same death rate, it's killing everybody who gets infected. And we still have the one group of scientists say, you know, if we get this girl's blood, this little six-year-old, we take her blood, we can cure this disease. But a second group of scientists, right before the parents consent to have the blood taken from their daughter, a second group of scientists announced that they've developed a vaccine and no one needs to die. We don't need anybody's blood. Well, that's good news now, right? That little girl doesn't need to die needlessly. It would, so, it would now serve no purpose for that little girl to die because now there's a way to save mankind without her dying. Now, here's the application, friends. If the law was designed to take care of our sin problem, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. If the law could have made us righteous, Jesus wouldn't have needed to have been crucified. But the law can't do that. The law can't make us righteous. It can't make us righteous and it can't make our children righteous. The law can't get rid of our sin. You see, the law does a good job of exposing our sin, but it has no power whatsoever to do away with our sin or the sin of our children. The law doesn't have that ability. And so it was necessary for Jesus to die. It was necessary for Him to display that grace to us. And so now what do we do as parents? As we parent our children, we don't parent them in law mode. Rather, now we parent them by preaching the gospel to our children. And I don't mean you sit them around the dinner table and monologue to them for 30 minutes or 40 minutes a week. That's not what I mean by preaching. 
Rather, we look for everyday ways and everyday opportunities to point our children to Jesus. We look for grace-filled moments to point our children to the wonders of God's grace for us. Here's a good motto for parenting. I found this in 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 that trip book on page 54. He writes, he says, Everything I do, I do to point my children to the presence and promises of God's grace. Everything I do, I do to point my children to the presence and promises of God's grace. And so when your daughter gets excluded from her friend group and she feels all alone, you point your daughter to Jesus. You point your daughter to the grace that He offers. And you tell her that her identity is found in Jesus, not in that friend group. And you tell her that Jesus will never leave her and never forsake her. Or when your son wrecks the family car. That, that happened to me when I was 16. Wrecked the family car. He wrecks the family car. You, you show him grace. You remind him that Jesus has been patient with us. And so you're willing to be patient with him. Or when your 10th grade daughter confesses to you that she's pregnant. You recognize right now is not a time to come down with the law. The law isn't going to be helpful right now. Grace is what's needed. And so you wrap your arms around your daughter and you thank her for having the courage to come and share that news with you. And we could multiply these examples over and over, couldn't we? Of parenting scenarios. The point, however, is this. The law will show us our sin, but the law can't deal with the aftermath of sin. Nor can the law eradicate sin from our lives. Only grace can do that. And so we parent from grace. Recognizing we need grace to be good parents. And we need a parent out of grace because our children need grace as well. God's grace is the only hope for parents and children. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize the reality and the importance of how desperately we all need your grace. And your law was given as good and it's holy. It serves a purpose in our lives. It shows us our sin. But the law can never take care of our sin problem. Only grace can do that. And so we're grateful for the grace that you show us. And we pray that we would also be grace-filled as we parent. That we would recognize, we would have grace to, to recognize that we blew it. To know that we don't have to live in those regrets because your grace covers our sin. But also as we love our children and point them to Jesus, that we would be grace-filled there as well. And so, Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.